It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Something to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the fire, of the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury's beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. The dark heart of the city, absolutely the dark heart of the city, the Salt Lake City, that is, in (laughs) Utah. That's right, that's right, indeed we will. salty, salty, stinky, stinky lake. It is sort of a smelly lake, a lot of dead brine shrimp shrimp. that you'll find there, but I'll tell you one thing, that there are lots of awfully nice folk there, and we are so glad to be up in Salt Lake City. We're going to be there for just a relatively short period of time. Then we're heading down to Las Vegas, Nevada for the world-famous SHOT Show. Not to gamble. Not to gamble or anything like that, but we're, we're gambling that we're going to get some nice orders for well, medical we'll kits. You know, yeah, yeah. You know. People Absolutely. go for guns, and then you have to convince them that, hey, first aid kits are awesome to have. Yeah, if you have a, a few hundred thousand guns. Know. Right. You never know. You never know. We're not anticipating bad things happen, but in life, you just don't know what, what's around the corner, unfortunately. That is true. That is very, very true. Oh, hey, you know yes. what we haven't said? Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival <laughs> Medicine Hour, a fortuitous fortress of fascination in a failing world. That's right. I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I am a nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, and also known as Nurse Amy. That's right, and together we are the dynamic duo, the spectacular spouses, the courageous couple. We are a courageous (laughs) couple, I'd say. And we are here to help you out there keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends... And neighbors. And neighbors. Have you been injured in an accident with an insidious sidewinder? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Orsamy. 
and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists, nor is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, yes, but when modern medicine's a thing of the past. Mm. Isn't that something? Modern medicine, yet it could become a thing of the past if there is a major disaster. You might end up off the grid as the highest medical asset left to your family in times of trouble. If that happens, well, can you step up to the plate? Can you hit a home run, or is it just going to be a foul ball down the hall? <laughs> I don't know. Well, you got to show the world that you've got more sense than the good Lord gave a snake, or you'll sink for sure. Get? Did you get that? Uh, I did. The, the S's. The snakiness of my... Of my <laughs> I did. That was good. The snakiness of that my sense. Very, very good. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, the important thing for you guys out there is to get some training, to learn something. And while you're at it, how about some supplies and a good medical kit to go along with all that? I can't think of a better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'd face in any disaster. They'll make your home safer. They'll make your workplace safer, your school, your church my gosh, and they're designed, sure enough, by an old country doctor like me and an advanced registered nurse practitioner like her. <laughs> Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, and you will see that our kits are what you should have in your medical storage. But don't take our word for it. Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll see what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. On top of all that, by the way, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in the store at store.doomandbloom.net. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us. Is that a sad statement or what? (laughs) So don't be a stranger, Ranger. Why not connect with the geezer and the goddess? It's so easy here is the lovely Nurse Amy to tell you how. Hey, you, are you yes, with us? I'm with you. All right. Well. I'm trying to make sure we have places to sleep and cars to drive on our our trip, our long, long um, trip. It will be a very interesting trip. Salt I'm Lake really City. looking forward. Look, really looking forward yes. to it. Yes. All right. So you can email us anytime at drbonesnurse.com. Amy, Dr. Bozer, at Dr. Bones podcast, podcast, which is what we're doing right now, there you are, right. at AOL.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. Of course, we have a one stop shopping at Doom and Bloom Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, and don't forget our YouTube channel. That is Dr. Bones Nurse Amy channel. Let's see. And you know what? And if you forget all of that, just go to doomandbloom.net and look at the top. That's right. It has our Twitter, our Facebook. Yeah, sign up for our RSS feed, right? Yeah. Yeah, So you don't miss any of our content that might help you save lives in times of trouble. Just go to the upper right of the main page at doomandbloom.net. That's all you got to do. And by the way, did I mention that you can find some of our articles in great magazines like... American Survival Guide, like Survivor's Edge, like Backwoods Home, 
all sorts of different places where we have been honored to publish our content. Yes. Stuff that hopefully will help you save lives. Hey, here's one last shameless plug. Last one, I promise. <laughs> this time for our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. That is, a, my opinion, one of my most long-awaited books, a detailed look into the fish and bird antibiotics and the infections that they are helpful to cure or prevent. It's about 300 pages long. It's one of our shorter books. Only concentrates on antibiotics that are available to the average person and the diseases that those antibiotics cure. Those go, I mean, that book, yes. Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, it goes into so much more depth on that one topic than even our survival medicine handbook. I can confidently say you haven't read a book like this, at least one written by an actual medical professional or two. This is not stuff you learn in CERC class or from where there is no doctor. This is the real thing. Amy, what are some of the things that you can learn in our book? Absolutely. How bacteria cause disease. How the immune system works to fight infection. In fact, there's some viruses going around right now. Not that antibiotics cure them, but folks, watch yourself. Wash your hands. Make sure no one's sneezing on you. But this will tell you how your immune system actually works to fight off all infections. And it also tells you how to identify bacterial versus viral disease. Again, very important because if you're going to be using antibiotics, antibiotics don't work on viruses. That's right. And so you need to find out, of course, what diseases, epidemic, pandemic diseases, basically infectious diseases that you can treat with antibiotics. Absolutely. So you don't waste the Short supply, probably, that you Precious have. Precious supply. Oh, right, exactly. Expensive supply. Exactly. You have to use antibiotics wisely. That's for sure. How antibiotics work. Most people don't know how antibiotics actually work. That's right. So we talk about that in, in detail. But when we, when we talk about it, we talk about it in plain English. There's Absolutely. Not, nothing in there that you are going to have trouble figuring out how it's not to comprehend co college it. level chemistry. There you go. Try to break it down, right? There you go. Break, <laughs> it, break it down, baby. Break it down. So anyhow, lots of different stuff that you talk about, individual antibiotics, the diseases that each one treats, uh, how to figure out the right dosage, what side effects are Aller common. Allergies, if there are any pregnancy or pediatric considerations. Right. Expiration dates. How many questions have we had about expiration dates? Oh my gosh, every in day. In the past 10 years. Yeah, sure enough. So, you know, it's just one more time that we're sort of explaining our feelings about expiration dates and some scientific studies that do back that up. Absolutely. I'll tell you one thing. There's more stuff in here than you can shake a stick at. How to put together a, a sick room for an epidemic. How to deal with wound infections, wound care, what supplies that you need if you're going to be effective mm -hmm. in your role as medic. So much more. If you want to be prepared for disasters, you won't regret having Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, the layman's guide to available antibacterials in austere settings in your survival library. And remember, our books are meant for situations where there isn't a functioning modern medical system. Mm -hmm. If there is, for goodness sake, get to a certified medical professional. Just as like soon we as you tell can. our kids. That's right. Don't call us. Call the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the doctor. They can call me. They have to call their own doctor. Right. Well, since. 
One of them is in Brooklyn. One of them is in Chicago That's and right. all over the place. Seek modern. You know, we couldn't help them if we tried. I give them the same advice. Seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Right. <laughs> That's and, what I tell them. And not a, not a bad idea. Maybe not in those exact words, but basically. <laughs> you know, today we have advanced laboratory studies that allow you to identify many pathogens. But despite this, it can be a pretty big challenge for healthcare providers to tell a bacterial disease from a viral one. As a matter of fact, you actually have to pretty much go with your instinct with something that we call empirical therapy. You basically look at signs and symptoms and you, based on your experience, based Mm -hmm. on what you know about particular diseases, you sort of guess that it's this. And lots of time in modern medicine, you, you treat people empirically Right, because you don't way. have instant tests. Right, the tests take a while to get back. Exactly. And Even in a doctor's office, you may consider or or suspect somebody is anemic, but nowadays they don't even do laboratory studies in office anymore. Remember, we used to have um, some machines yes. in the office that would run, you know, a few basic tests. Right, you could do a blood count. Now, you, you don't even have your blood test. drawn at your doctor's office. You have to go to one of these... Quest or right. LabCorp facilities right. off-site and have your blood drawn separately. So a doctor can say, well, it seems to me as though you have all the symptoms of anemia. I'm going to give you these vitamins and tell you these Iron things to eat. Meat. Exactly. Changing the way you eat and hoping to cure you before I know for sure that you actually have anemia. Exactly. Now right. here's a an order to go get the blood test, but he might not have that test result for a few days. And that's what we call empirical therapy. You're figuring out from signs and symptoms what a patient is likely to have, and you're treating them with the treatment for what they're likely to have. Exactly. Now that's separate from what we call definitive therapy and definitive therapy let's see okay uh, i'll tell you, definitive I'll, I'll tell therapy. you. I, I got one i got one all right go ahead okay you're in the doctor's office and you cut your arm off there you go. and you you bleed and then you go into the office and you say doctor i don't feel so well and he says well i think you have a low blood volume <laughs> which is also anemia <laughs> I think we need bleeding. to treat you. <laughs> but in this case, but the he knows what's happened. Right, exactly. But this case, in this case, the, the definitive therapy would be to put a tourniquet on yes, that bleeding arm, and there, and that's definitive therapy. That is something that you know that the treatment that you're going to give this person who is bleeding to death is will is the is the right is the right treatment. That is called definitive therapy. There you go. So, now, what was your example? Well, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That was the example, you. bleeding. I didn't I was, mean I was to picking interrupt bleeding. you. No, no, it was good. But what yours, was your, was tell was me your example. You come in bleeding from, oh, okay. you know, bleeding to That's death. so funny. You're right, exactly. We, we think, think alike. exactly the oh, same. <laughs> did it again. How about that? Well, in any oh, case, gosh. let's talk a little bit. I want to talk about pneumonia a little bit. Pneumonia can be bacterial, it can be viral, and both mm-hmm. produce similar symptoms like cough and fever. Uh, from a diagnosis standpoint, it's pretty difficult to tell the difference. Even in normal times, you know, with laboratory tests and stuff like that, it takes a while to figure that out. In disaster settings, of course, it's worse. There's a limited supply of medicines. You can't replace these medicines if you do use them, so you don't want to waste them. Uh, uh, an antibiotic, for example, wouldn't have any effect on a viral infection, and to waste 
precious antibiotics on a virus may be catastrophic for the next person that actually comes to you with a legitimate bacterial infection. That's right. So what can a caregiver without access to modern facilities do to distinguish between a bacterial and a viral infection? Now, bacteria and viruses are both microscopic organisms that can cause disease. Or even though they're alike in that sense, they're mm-hmm. otherwise as alike as a bullfrog and a blue whale. Absolutely. That's- in fact, so different that viruses can actually attack bacteria. That's right. Bacteria, uh, viruses that's, can make bacteria sick. That's a sick. crazy thing. <laughs> yeah, if you guys think about that. And there are major differences in structures. Uh, viruses are so simple. Viruses aren't even a cell. They consist basically of a little genetic material held together by a little coat of protein and that's different from bacteria. Bacteria are single cell creatures and they have an actual wall. They have a membrane surrounding the cells. The cell it may have little organelles or little proto-organs, Something to I move, guess. make it move around. Right, exactly. And viruses, by the way, are also much smaller than bacteria by a factor of probably 10 to 100, but they outnumber them more than 10 to 1. Now, bacteria, they can reproduce on their own without the aid of a host. That's one of the things. Now, there are some bacteria that do reproduce in a host, but that most bacteria have the ability to reproduce on their own. On the outside, right. But the problem with for viruses is that viruses actually have to enter the host cell because they need to use its genetic machinery as a factory to manufacture new viruses. And so they actually accomplish this by entering the host cell and they change the genetic material of the host cell to viral DNA, I guess, from normal functions to everything from normal doing their normal functions to multiplying new viruses. It is unbelievable. That now most unbelievable what they can do. Oh, absolutely. Most bacteria absolutely harmless. Less than one percent actually cause disease. Something called being pathogenic. A pathogen is a disease-causing organism. Viruses, on the other hand, are often pathogens. They often cause diseases that, not instead of less than 1% like bacteria, a lot of them, a lot of viruses will so, cause disease. So, hate the virus, you can love the bacteria. There you go. Because well, we actually, actually have beneficial bacteria. You have more bacterial cells in your body than you have your cells. That's mind-blowing. Is that mind-blowing? No, that that's mind-blowing. Right, you have so many bacterial cells Does that in mean your if gut. I take some antibiotics that I'll lose half my weight? <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't that? I would yeah, love why that. Why doesn't that work? That sounds you, awesome. <laughs> you would think that that would work, right? <laughs> you know what it is? Bone, bone tissue weighs yeah. a lot more than a bacteria. Go figure. Huh? <laughs> I'm sure. Well, so anyhow, viruses... And muscle tissue weighs a lot. Now, the amazing thing (laughs) about viruses, you mentioned a little while ago that viruses can actually infect bacteria. You're actually right. Now, there was actually an article in Nature magazine Mm -hmm. that claimed that that viruses kill half of the world's bacteria every two days. Of course, it says says a lot for how how bacteria multiply. Multiply, (laughs) right. But... That is, that is actually incredible. a claim made in an article so, in a scientific viruses journal. Viruses are very magazine. scary. Yeah, they are Think very scary. Think about sc- it. They are very, I mean, very scary. You know, we have talked about, and this is one of our big 
things for prepping was the concern for a big giant pandemic. Yes. And that was one of the biggest things that concerned us. You know, everyone has their own issue of what they think is going to happen. And I would definitely say that a medical issue like a pandemic was for us one of the, the factors that got us to be super preppers instead of just, you know, regular hurricane, hurricane preppers, preppers. Like most people in South Florida. That we had, you know, we had a little bit of extra everything. We might have even had a little more because my dad was kind of a prepper. <laughs> yes, I grew up. I, I grew agree. up with a a prepper mindset for a father. Yes. Good survival. Good. Yes, good this is you. how you start a fire, right? This yeah, is a good right. Father, yes. Exactly. This so, is how you you shoot guns. And this is safety, and this is how you put up a tent. This is how you purify water. I mean, he was really, really good about that. He didn't actually say we may have to survive some end of the world event. I guess. I don't know if he was ever thinking it, but he probably didn't want to scare us kids. Now it's funny. He talks about it now, but he didn't talk about it when we were kids. But going back to the flu pandemic because of viruses, one day there just might be a mutation that makes it really easy to transmit and super easy to take hold of the host. And it just multiplies and and is so damaging to the host, i.e. humans, Mm -hmm. that it kills us. And it just jumps from person to person to person to person to person and has a super high mortality rate. Sure, viruses mutate at an alarming rate, and most of the mutations don't really change the virus much, but sometimes a mutation can change it. If if a mutation had occurred in the Ebola virus— and, and the funny thing is that they documented quite a few mutations that mm-hmm. occurred during the epidemic in West Africa. Right. They were if, following it very carefully. Right. If if a mutation occurred that changed the virus to make it more infectious from an airborne standpoint, yes. wow, then, then that would have been a worldwide pandemic. By the way, um, if you don't know the difference between a pandemic and an epidemic, and everybody's heard of an epidemic, and not everybody's heard of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. An epidemic basically is the uh, sudden outbreak of an infectious disease in a community that's not there all the time. The gotcha. disease is not there all the time. Now, right. there are places where there is a lot of disease that is there all the time. Let's say some tropical countries in malaria. Or they, or they may have chikungunya. Or, yes, right, right exactly. Just kind of a, Another a thing they sort of virus. live with. It's, right, no, you know, right exactly. Common. That's a tropical virus. And the um, malaria is not a virus. It's more, it's more like a parasite. But the basic thing is that malaria is there all the time. Gotcha. Okay, since malaria the is there idea. all the time, that's called, all the time. that's called endemic disease. Endemic disease. It's sort it, of a neighbor. Right. Exactly. An unfriendly neighbor. neighbor right. But exactly. a neighbor. And an epidemic disease is one that shows up that's not there all the time. A so, stranger right. so comes in, to town. Now, it may be a, a relatively common thing. could be an influenza epidemic. Now, the influenza season is not all year round. Right. Otherwise, it would be an endemic disease. But because it's not, and it shows up suddenly, usually mm-hmm. in an area, it is an epidemic disease. Now, if that influenza outbreak occurs in different parts of the world, mm-hmm. 
you know, over a relatively short period of time, then that's called a pandemic. That means it's gone to other continents, other regions of the world. And Ebola, for example, never really did that. There was one guy that I think managed to uh, leave Africa, leave Liberia, ended up in Texas, infected a couple of nurses. Yes. But that didn't really turn out to become a community outbreak there. So, therefore, Ebola never became an epidemic. They shut that down. Yeah, it never became, it never became a pandemic. It, became, it was an epidemic, never became a pandemic. Uh, but there are... Influenza epidemics, for example, the Spanish flu of 100 years ago, that was indeed a true worldwide pandemic. Very scary. So let's see, what can a caregiver without access to modern facilities do to tell the difference between a bacterial and a viral infection? That's what I was talking about in the beginning. I, right. I, I digress. Please I, me. <laughs> You digressed because I digressed you. You digressed me. Yeah, but you know, you usually, I diverted but and we, digressed But we talked you. about some stuff that may, maybe people didn't know, so that, that's a good thing. Uh, now, there are some subtle differences that might point you in the right direction between whether it's a bacterial or a viral infection. One is the length of the illness. Now, many viral infections are self-limited. They improve on their own. If they don't kill the host, that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and most show significant improvement by, let's say, about 10 days or so. Now, bacterial infections, if you don't treat them, however, they might last a lot longer time than that. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't viruses that last a long time. Hepatitis is one, for example. Right. It could last for months. You know, it could keep you sick for quite a while. But most of the time, with, let's say, a common cold, things like that, you're better seven days or so down the road. Bacterial infections, however, if that cold turned into a bacterial pneumonia, it, you would be sick for a lot longer period of time. And so uh, we're talking a little bit, um, I'm sort of trying to concentrate on respiratory infections since we're uh, in the middle of Well, it's of a good example. Season. And that boy, there's something going around. Absolutely. Everyone seems sick. That's right. Now, now the severity of the fever may be another clue. Bacterial infections tend to be associated with a pretty impressive temperature spike. Uh, viral infections maybe, may not, may show a tendency to cause fever. Uh, in some cases of influenza, could be very cause a very high fever, as a matter of fact. And you might wonder what actually is a fever. A fever uh, has an actual point, numerical point, where you actually in consider, textbooks, yeah, where you consider that we learned from right, where you consider someone as be having a fever. That person is known to be febrile. Febrile is what they call that. And, and that fever is 38 degrees centigrade, and that equals 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. But the funny thing about that is that most people feel pretty darn sick before they get to 104, oh, 100.4 degrees you Fahrenheit. You get in the 99s, and your body starts aching. That's right, because most you start people... Right? Even low 99s, you're like, oh, I just don't... You What's don't going feel on? Right. Right. Don't you feel know, right. You start creeping up in the higher 99s, and you're gonna want to get in bed you you start getting a hundred you want someone to take care of you yes <laughs> yeah, mom i know you're 300 or 3,000 miles away but could you come make me, me some, some chicken soup, soup? Yeah. <laughs> give me a cool cloth uh, you start wanting your mom <laughs> i know well that's well you're absolutely right most people and the funny thing is, the ninety eight point six. And that's before we even get to, to the normal. official temperature. Right, you're, right. you're feeling pretty bad already. Some people actually have temperatures that are normally lower than ninety eight point six. My 
Both of us. My run normal temperature runs about 98.0, 97.8. I run like 97.6, 97.8. So everybody's a little bit different. It doesn't take much for you and I to feel achy. That's true. Now, the color of the mucus oh, that's produced in a, in a respiratory infection may give you a clue. Now, both bacterial and viral infections can cause cough. Mm-hmm. In viral respiratory infections, however, the phlegm is usually sort of whitish, sort of clearish looking. But in a bacterial infection, especially ones that include the sinuses, mucus may be yellowish, greenish, and all sorts of funky colors. I've seen neon green. (laughs) That's pretty impressive. It happens, especially when you have kids. You see all kinds of colors come out of them. Like, really? You made that? (laughs) It happens. Another question is, the problem is the problem localized or is it systemic? Now, a localized infection, okay, is an infection that involves just small areas of your body. It doesn't, it's not, not all over your body. If you have an infe- infection that infects your entire body, that's called a systemic infection. So what would be an example? Let's say a bacterial infection like strep throat involves mostly the tonsils in the back of the throat. Right. And so that is what we call a localized infection. Whereas, or, or another infection would be a boil. Okay. That is even better. That's an even better. Even actually. more localized, uh, exactly. Right, because it, it, you see it. It's right there. It's a bump there, and it may uh, sort of exude some pus, things like that. That's a localized infection. Mm-hmm. We, those are almost always bacterial, by the way. Uh, whereas, a lot of respiratory infections may involve the entire upper and lower respiratory tract. You, you could have, let's say, a, a bad influenza, viral influenza, that. It causes you to have a runny nose, nasal congestion, and a sore fever, throat, and sore a cough, throat, and a cough, right. and difficulty Everything. breathing, the whole shebang. Right. So that's a systemic infection, and that and those, of course, are more dangerous than, than localized infections. Now, speaking of threat, strep throat, if you see pimple pimples or white spots on the tonsils or the back back of the throat, that is generally a bacterial infection. A strep throat is a bacterial infection. And we'll talk about that in a <coughs> future show. Cough. And you, look at you. <coughs> All right, you go you go somewhere oh and take care gosh. of that. And don't don't give it to me. I'm not g- <laughs> I probably gave it to I probably gave it to you. Listen, I'm bringing in 100 masks on the plane with us. All right. Ab, that's a good idea. The, remember now, those Now that doesn't mean that you're bringing 100 masks. masks. It sounded like you're bringing 100 masks, but you're not. You're bringing an N100 mask. AN100 mask is a mask that actually blocks 99.97% of particles, air droplets, over the size of 0.2 microns. Wow. That's, I just don't want us to get sick yeah, anywhere. A, right. A, <laughs> Somebody's a, coughing near me. I'm putting this mask on. The diameter of a hair on your head is like a sequoia tree compared to what the size of droplet this thing will block uh, block so an n100 mask is an excellent mask to have for protection purposes the only thing is that it's those are relatively expensive less expensive are the n95 masks they give you 95 percent protection against uh particles that are 0.2 microns or greater but still pretty good and you can get those in quantity for not too much money uh let's see i the other thing I guess I would I would ask myself 
if I'm looking at somebody, is are there a lot of other symptoms? So if you have a sore throat without a runny nose or sneezing, that's probably strep throat, uh, especially if you see pimples in the back of the throat or white spots on the tonsils. Uh, but the flu can cause all sorts of these other symptoms, uh, and it really gives me a feeling that it could be viral. But the funny thing is that there, everything I just told you, there are exceptions to. So it's really hard to say for sure whether you're talking about a bacterial or a viral infection. However, however, I will say that there are infections in certain parts of the body that are very, very likely to be bacterial as opposed to viral. Very few people get a viral urinary tract infection. Most of these are caused by bacteria. Wound infections are very rarely caused by viruses. They're usually caused by bacteria. Skin infections, although it could be fungal, could be a fungus can cause a skin infection, ringworm or something like that, or, or, or athlete's foot. Skin infections are oftentimes bacterial. Uh, soft tissue infections, if you have a, a wound, a, a wound that gets infection or an incision from surgery that gets infection. Infected, that's usually bacterial also. And of course, abscesses and boils are almost always bacterial in nature. So there is a situation where you can start off with a viral infection and end up with a bacterial infection. And that's very common in respiratory infections, especially in pneumonia. If you have a viral influenza or viral pneumonia, if what if you don't get better within a certain period of time, you take a sudden turn for the worse after a period of apparent improvement, well, that might indicate that you you have developed a secondary bacterial infection. And if that's the case, you are in trouble because that is what actually kills people. So that's what most likely killed most of the people that died from the Spanish flu. It was probably not the flu itself, but a secondary bacterial infection that came afterwards because the people were so weakened, their immune system wasn't able to fight it. So that's something pretty bad. Now, there have been many different bacteria. I'm going to talk about bacterial pneumonia now. I'd like to talk about that. Respiratory infections are mostly viral but once again, they get into the actual lung, causing pneumonia, an infection of the lungs, well, that percentage chance of a bacterial infection increases by quite a bit. There are many different bacteria that have been implicated uh, as the cause of a pneumonia, but a few are more common than others, so you should know a little bit about them. Without lab studies, many pneumonias will look very similar. Sometimes it's going to be a challenge to choose what the right therapy is. So let's talk a little bit about some bacterial types of pneumonia. Now they'll have, of course, the usual signs and symptoms, cough and fever and uh, maybe difficulty breathing, things like that. Uh, so, but there are additional clues that may help make the diagnosis in some cases. And we'll talk a little bit about treatment too. We'll discuss that in more detail though in other shows, but we'll talk uh, basically about the basic treatment here. Uh, let's talk about streptococcal pneumonia, and some people call this pneumococcal pneumonia, and that's usually associated with a special kind of phlegm that comes out. The phlegm actually looks sort of rusty, and probably because of red blood cells there, it is a rusty-colored sputum uh, mixed in with all the other symptoms of pneumonia. Now, this is honestly the most common type of bacterial pneumonia, and it, in the past it was treated primarily with penicillin penicillin family drugs, uh, but lately there have been some resistant strains, and you may wind up having 
some bacterial pneumonias caused by pneumococcus or streptococcus be a little more susceptible to other kinds of antibiotics, things like erythromycin or uh, sulfa drugs or even um, ciprofloxacin. Now, ciprofloxacin has a number of different side effects that could be dangerous, uh, damage to nerves and muscles, so that's something you should only use when absolutely necessary. I'm sure that uh, there are people out there that can tell you a horror story or two about what happened when they took it. But it can also act as an antibiotic that can actually save a life too, so you have to make some tough judgments sometimes. There's another kind of pneumonia that occurs in crowded areas, and so you may wind up being in a crowded crowded area, especially in the winter where everybody stays inside, and that is Legionella. Now, the thing with Legionella is that it has all the symptoms of pneumonia, but also you get diarrhea with it too and abdominal pain. And if you are older person, an older person, usually you start having some issues with altered mental status. I think that's mostly due to dehydration, to be honest, which I'm getting a little dehydrated right now. Hold on. Need a little water there. And um, <clears throat> this is, uh, was originally, it's called Legionella because it was originally found in a group of people that were uh, at a Veterans of Foreign Wars Legion or American Legion convention and it happens because of some issues relating to contamination of air conditioning units. And so you see that a lot and when it happens it occurs many times in the housing projects with bad um, air flow systems, things like that. For this type of for this type of pneumonia, which remember again, pneumonia with abdominal pain and diarrhea, something to consider. Well, you might want to use something like azithromycin or erythromycin, a macrolide antibiotic. That might be a reason reasonable choice for that. Remember, in the future, I'll be talking about these things in more detail. Then there's another pneumonia known as Klebsiella pneumonia. It's associated with all the usual pneumonia symptoms, but with a bloody sputum. Actually, it looks like cherry preserves. Klebsiella is actually a, a pretty normal inhabitant of the human skin. Also, you also have it in your intestines too, but it's dangerous if it ever makes it into the lungs. So that's something that's pretty scary. Usually, this it has to be treated with intravenous antibiotics, but some people feel that fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin may be effective as well, it may be all you have in a true survival situation. The veterinary version of that is called fish flux. Then there's something called mycoplasma pneumonia. This is associated with all the symptoms of pneumonia with some symptoms in the ears too. You have some pain in your ears, some this clogging of your ears, your lymph nodes near in your neck swell up, uh, you get joint pain. It used to be called walking pneumonia because the symptoms usually weren't severe enough to cause a patient to be bedridden, but they were still sick. Now, mycoplasma is a type of bacterial species that differs from others because they lack a cell wall. And since many antibiotics like penicillin kill bacteria by attacking the cell wall, if you don't have a cell wall, there's nothing to attack. 
So as a result, mycoplasma is naturally resistant to penicillin-related drugs. So for this, you would also need something like azithromycin, uh, bird zithro, or erythromycin, fish mycin. These would be preferable antibiotics. There's also Haemophilus influenza. H flu is what uh, some people call it. And it presents like a cold at first with uh, some low-grade fevers. You might think you have just a virus, but it goes down into the lungs in just a few days, you start wheezing, you have difficulty breathing. The, the mucus that comes up is sort of grayish beige, and the, for, the cough persists for weeks and weeks unless you treat it. So the treatment for this, luckily, is still many people can take penicillin, family drugs, or, or Keflex, uh, cephalox, uh, cephalexin. These are all drugs that are sort of related and still used, but... You can also use sulfa drugs, tetracyclines, other antibiotics are also options. Now, I'm mentioning all these individual bacterial species and their signs because different antibiotics are used based on the type. You notice that I mentioned that you might be able to use penicillin for one thing, but you need to use azithromycin for another or a sulfa drug for another. You know, different antibiotics are used based on the type of infection that you're dealing with. And so anything you can do that can give you a clue about the epi make, making an educated guess as to what bacteria might be involved is going to increase your chances that you're going to actually be going to be able to cure your victim. So these are things that are going to be important. But uh, medicines that I think would be very useful to have in terms of antibiotics would be azithromycin, cephalexin, sulfur drugs, our book, Alms Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, talks about these three and about a dozen more antibiotics in a lot of detail. And so this is something that you might really want to have. You have to remember that uh, amoxicillin is very popular and very useful for many, many types of bacterial infections. But there are, and from a respiratory standpoint, a lot of there's a lot of resistance to penicillin family drugs. And you just have to realize that, at least in the U.S., they have become a little bit less useful. Still, I think that amoxicillin is one of the antibiotics that you should have if, if you don't have a family that's all allergic to penicillin. They are very, very, it's very helpful, and most of the people tolerate it quite well. There are other types of respiratory type infections that we should talk about for a second. The epiglottis is a structure um, that you have at the base of your tongue that actually can get infected. It, it, a lot of people wonder what it's used for. Well, the epiglottis is the valve that prevents food from going down your windpipe. So as you eat and drink, what prevents the food from going into your lungs and the, your, your drink going into your lungs is the epiglottis. And when the epiglottis becomes infected, boy, it can be life-threatening. It swells, it can block your airways, and it is something that you see more commonly in children, but you do see it in adults also. In, in any case, whoever it is, it represents a major emergency. Uh, adult cases seem to develop more slowly than pediatric ones, so you, know, you have to keep an eye, a very close eye on people. Uh, epiglottitis, you start showing symptoms probably within one to three days after exposure to uh, a bacteria. The symptoms of epiglottitis commonly include a high fever, a sore throat, difficulty breathing, but also people become very hoarse. 
they have difficulty speaking. I'm getting a little hoarse now, but that's because I've, this is my second podcast I'm doing today. But hoarseness is definitely something that you'll see. If you have a little kid that's hoarse, then you have to be pretty concerned about it. That person also is beginning to feel a sort of limit to the amount of oxygen they're taking in, so they start feeling agitated. They can't, can't sit still. They are scared. And some people do say that they feel better when they're upright or, or leaning forward. This is something that you actually can see might, that might clue you in that this, you're dealing with an epiglottitis. If they're, they can breathe better when they're upright or leaning forward, that's sometimes a sign that you may be dealing with that. Epiglottitis has been associated with something called croup. Croup is an infection of the voice box, the trachea, and the upper airways, but croup is usually caused by a virus. There are rare cases in which it could be caused by staph or strep or haemophilus, some of the things that we talked about just earlier in this show, but most of the time it's viral. And it's a very scary thing. The kids are, are wheezing. They are having trouble breathing. They feel a little better if they're in steam. So lots of times I had one of my kids had croup and I spent a lot of time in the shower holding my toddler who was looked sounded very scary. I'll tell you, it really is a scary thing to behold. If you've had a kid with croup, you know what I'm talking about. Epiglottitis is treated by a lot of the fancy third generation uh, Keflex related family drugs, but it's usually treated with an intravenous version of it because it has to get better very quickly so that that person can breathe. Of course, if you're going to be the medic, it's very possible that you're in an austere setting, you're off the grid, there may not be modern medicine available, modern IV therapy may not be an option. If that's the case, then you might consider using something like clindamycin, cleosin, or fishcin, C-I-N, fishcin. That is something that you might consider, although the problem is, is that swallowing is one of the main difficulties that people have if they have epiglottitis. So how are you going to get that into somebody? That's why they use intravenous medication in almost all cases. I don't have too much time left, but I do want to talk about some of your duties and responsibilities as the medic in a true survival setting, especially in a long-term survival setting. I'll tell you, it'll be a very fortunate family that has a, a physician or other formally trained medical professional among its members. So when there is no doctor, somebody in your group has to be assigned the responsibilities of medic. That person could very easily be you, and you could make the difference between success and failure for a community that has lost access to modern medicine. If you've been designated as a family medic, well, you know what? you got to assess your level of preparedness well before a disaster occurs. And I call this making a status assessment. And when you perform this assessment, you have to ask a number of questions. And these answers that you will figure out will clarify your job description and it'll give you an idea of your level of readiness. So let's go over some, some of these. I think I probably only have time for one, but it's a very big question. And the question is, what are your responsibilities? It seems to, I'm sure it seems to you that this is a very simple thing. Sure, of course, 
It goes without saying that if you're the group medic, you're going to be responsible for the medical well-being of your community. But what does that mean? It means that, sure, as well as being the chief medical officer, that you're going to be a number of other things, too. There is a bigger job description than just that. And you're going to be, number one, the medical officer, but number two, you're going to be the chief sanitation officer. It's going to be your duty to make sure that sanitary conditions at your retreat, at your camp, or compound do not cause the spread of disease, infectious diseases like what we were talking about among the members of your family or your group. This is going to be a huge issue in an austere setting and in my opinion is going to cause the most medical issues with disease and death, avoidable death in any survival group. Now some of your responsibilities Therefore, if you are going to be the chief sanitation officer, are going to relate to proper disposal of human waste, latrine placement, and construction. Uh, others will relate to the supervision of the appropriate uh, disinfection of water, filtration of water. You want to assure that food is prepared properly. Work surfaces are cleaned regularly. That's going to be very, very important. All of these things are going to be major factors as to whether your group or family are going to remain healthy or not. You have to have properly prepared and cooked food. You have to have disinfected water properly filtrated. You have to dispose of human waste in an appropriate fashion so it doesn't contaminate your water source. You have to eliminate vermin from your shelters. That's going to decrease the spread of disease. And you have to enforce the maintenance of good personal and group hygiene. So careful attention to these details are going to be an important part of a program that's going to keep your family or community healthy. Now, your third duty is that of chief dental officer. Aha! Now, if you are the person that's in charge of, let's say, a post-hurricane situation where you're going to have a week without power, you probably don't need to worry too much about most dental issues. But if you are in a long-term situation or you're in a remote location, you are in a situation where modern medicine or modern dentistry is not available, well, you're going to see dental problems over a period of time after some months. Dental problems will start becoming as frequent as medical problems. And anybody who has had a bad toothache knows that it really affects your concentration and certainly affects your work efficiency and that affects whether you survive or not. You're going to need to know how to deal with dental issues like toothaches, broken teeth, lost fillings to be an effective medic in a long-term survival setting. Any long-term survival setting, need to know dental. So part of your planning should be the accumulation of dental supplies that can handle emergencies that you're likely to encounter. Now, if you want to know what dental supplies you should have, just go to our store, store.doomwoom.net, look at our dental kit, and you'll see what should be in a good austere dental kit. And this is not because I want you to buy that kit, although you certainly can. It's there and it's made already for you, but at least you'll have the contents in a, in a nice list. You can print it out and see if you can find those items for a, a better price than you find in our store. If you can, I've congratulate you. Now you are also, your fourth duty is you are the chief counselor. 
goes without saying that any collapse of any type is going to wreak havoc with people's mindsets. Matter of fact, you should probably be dealing with daily, daily with anxiety, with depression. I mean, much more often, I hope, than dealing with gunfights at the OK Corral. You've got to know how to deal with depression and anxiety as well as cuts and broken bones. So you're the chaplain, essentially, unless there is indeed a pastor or psychologist or somebody like that in your group. So you have to sharpen your communication skills as well as your medical skills. You have to be also cognizant of the importance of confidentiality in all your patient contacts. If you lose the trust of the members of your group, boy, that is one fast way to lose the effectiveness of being a medic. Now, you're also the medical quartermaster. That's your fifth or sixth duty, fifth duty, I think. You've done your job. You've accumulated all these medical and dental supplies. But who decides when you break them out and use them? You do. When will you dispense that limited supply of antibiotics you have, for example? I mean, in a collapse, this kind of item is not going to be produced. And you are not going to find these just laying around in most places. You're going to carefully monitor your supply stock and usage of antibiotics, of any kind of medical supply to allow you to control the ability to handle medical emergencies. And your sixth job is you are the archivist. You're in charge of writing down the medical histories of the people in your group. And that's a lot of work, but this record's going to be useful to remember all the medical conditions your people have, their allergies, medications that they might be taking if you have a large community. I'll tell you, it, it may be impossible to memorize all this information. You've got to take it down. You've got to put it down on paper. And if you can do that, then you'll know exactly what kind of medicines that you should be accumulating because you'll know what kind of medical problems that your people are most likely to have. So that's something that's important. We're out of time right now, but we will be talking more about your responsibilities and a lot more questions you should be asking yourself if you're going to be in, if you're going to be the medic in a survival setting. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Survival Medicine Hour. We'll be back next week. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.